The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Disability Matters with your host, Joyce Bender. All comments, views, and opinions expressed on this show are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. Now the host of Disability Matters, here's Joyce Bender. Hey everyone, happy holidays and welcome to the show. And I've got to tell you, I I am really excited about this show. I am. I was so looking forward to this show. We haven't done this before, but I'm going to make it an annual event. And that is that I have three national disability leaders, lady leaders, on the line with me, and I wanted to sort of review the year, highlights of the year, things that occurred that, you know, were good or things that concerned us, and I could not think of any other more powerful women to have on than Dara Baldwin, Rhonda Newhouse, and Becca Coakley. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, Joyce. Well, Thank hey, you, before we start, there's something we have to do. I don't know if you all knew that, know this or not, but on almost every single show, I have a shout-out to someone, and then after that, you may feel free to make comments also, and that is to Yoshiko Dart. Oh. Yoshiko, <laughs> I know you listen to every show, and now you're out there. I know you told me you say hi back, so... Special shout-out. I know you love these three ladies. So, hey, Becca, do you have something you want to say to Yoshiko? Hi, Yoshiko. I love you. Lead on. Rhonda? Yoshiko, I just got your holiday card. Thank you for always the love and support. We love you. Daryl? Same here. Hi, Yoshiko. Love you. Thank you always for being there for us. She's our Rosa Parks of the disability movement. We love you, Yoshiko. We do. She is awesome. She is. And you know what? Before we get going, just if you could briefly tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and what we do. And, Becca, you're in, certainly in a very powerful position. Uh, Becca Coakley, how about if you tell everyone what you do? Sure. My name is Rebecca Coakley. I'm the Executive Director of the National Council on Disability. Um, I'm a second-generation disability rights advocate, um, raising a third generation of disability rights advocates. Um, and my kids, Jackson and Kaya, um, and I've been doing this work for the last 20 years. How is that possible when you're so young? I don't know. You started. Well, it's not like going to be possible anymore for the next generation of leaders, but that's something that we can talk about later in the conversation. All right. Hey, Rhonda, how about if you introduce yourself? Hi, everyone. My name is Rhonda Newhouse, and I'm the policy analyst for government affairs with the Disability Rights Education and Defense Fund, um, based out in Berkeley, California, but I'm here in Washington, D.C., um, and I did uh, international disability and human rights for 12 years before coming to DREDIS, and it's been wonderful to work here in D.C. with my colleagues and with you all um, on domestic issues for the last four years. Okay, Dara? 
Sure. Hi, everyone. I'm Dara Baldwin. I'm the Public Policy Analyst for the National Disability Rights Network, or NDRN. Um, we are the protection and advocacy national organization for them. You have one in every state, so you probably have a PNA in your state. Um, and I've been doing this work since 2009. I've been doing disability advocacy work, but I've been doing social justice work uh, since 2004. Um, and I um, also am a part of my family members. I have people with disabilities in my family. Um, and truly enjoy this work and think it's important and hope to be like uh, Rebecca said and hopefully, you know, 20 years we won't have to do this work. Thank and you. I um, truly enjoy working with these two lovely ladies here in Washington, D.C. Yeah, they're dynamos. You're all dynamos. Just so everyone knows, I want to tell you something about these three. They are the real deal. I mean, these three are passionate about the disability community. These aren't like I talk about it, but I don't care about it. They live it. They are so highly respected uh, and thought of. I love every one of them. And, and I wanted to start, and then, Becca, I want to go back next to that comment you made about leaders, leadership. But mm-hmm. I want to start with something really great for all of us, and that would be Section 503 of the Rehabilitation Act, which I must tell you, I never, ever really believed was going to happen. I don't know when it was going to happen since it had not happened for over 40 years. As a matter of fact, I remember the day Tony Quello called me and told me, Joyce, it's a done deal. And I still had a hard time believing it. I said, Jimmy, it's really here. It's really going to be... Uh, a new ruling, a new rule, a new impact, um, and here it is. So I'm going to start with you, Becca. What do you think is going to be the impact of Section 503 in 2015? And I think um, all eyes are on Section uh 503 and, and particularly on the great work that we're seeing come out of the Department of Labor with uh, Secretary Perez, um, you know, Assistant Secretaries Chow and... and um, uh, sorry, Assistant Secretary Shu and Assistant Secretary Martinez, among others over there. I think there really is a solid commitment to increasing the employment of people with disabilities. Um, you know, and at the same time, I think there's, there's continued opportunities. I'd like to see a, um, a requirement requiring any internship program that supplies interns to the federal government um, be equally required to track the number of interns with disabilities that they recruit and that they place in the federal government. So I think it's a definitely a great launch pad um, and at the same time gives us directions in which we need to pivot uh, further going forward. Right. How about you, Rhonda? What do you think? Um, I think that it's a wonderful beginning of a much-needed conversation that all people with disabilities can and should be working um, and to inform the ways that accommodations are needed without um, being concerned. Um, I think that it's creating a greater awareness and it's setting the tone, hopefully, for for more federal government beyond what its contractors can do. Um, How about you, Dara? We have to work out some of the technical things with, you know, some of the the details there, but I I think it has um, potentially very significant impact. Right. Dara, what do you think? 
same here. I agree with what's said, and I would also add um, not only is it shedding light on the um, employment of people with disabilities, but usually, even though people don't like to admit this, um, you know, uh, industries follow the government, and if the government starts hiring people with disabilities, then we hope, you know, that will overflow into those industries, different industries, that they can see that it is possible, um, it is not very expensive, um, and that, you know, it's about inclusion and including all people in all areas of life. And so um, I think it's going to set an example not only to, you know, the United States, but to the world that, mm-hmm. you know, the United States government is um, ready, willing, and able to employ people with disabilities um, in many different areas. And so, therefore, you in, you industry people, um, and, you know, all kinds of industry, whether it's the movies, uh, transportation, um, housing, um, construction, you got to follow suit and um, do what the government's doing. So I think it's a great mm-hmm. thing. Well, you know, for those of you uh, listening across the country that don't know, <clears throat> Section 503 of the Rehabilitation Act was actually put into executive law over 41 years ago mm-hmm. and signed by President Richard Nixon. That is how long it has been there where federal contractors, which is anyone that receives more than $10,000 from the federal government, would be required to have affirmative action for employing people with disabilities. Um, But it didn't happen. It has never happened. And, you know, 22% of people in the United States employed work for a federal contractor. So probably anyone you can think of from IBM to Coca-Cola, they're federal contractors. And now, for the first time, there is an aspirational goal of 7%. There is an absolute great emphasis on getting people to self-identify at the company and, you know, putting in place your records, how are you going to recruit people, what are you going to do strategically, you know, this is all going to be audited by OFCCP, which, as uh, Becca mentioned, is headed up by Pat Shu, who to me is a hero, heroine, just because of this, as is, of course, President Obama, for really being behind something that when you think about it, they're anticipating 400,000 people with disabilities could get a job in one year because of this. And so to me, it's too bad everyone doesn't realize that, but like that is really powerful for people with disabilities. And and Becca, I know that you worked at the White House with the president. Uh, Would you not agree that he's been very disability-oriented? You know, the president is firmly committed to the employment of people with disabilities. He strongly believes that people are policy and that it really matters who's at the table. Um, you know, across the areas of government, not just the disability-specific offices. And I think for us, I think one of the challenges we've we had when I worked at the in, at the White House on the recruitment side is the disability community does not really have a robust group of trade associations within our community. Um, which is typically where, as a, as a person doing recruitment, I would find individuals with this, I would find individuals from diverse communities. I would work with, um, the National Association of Black Journalists or, um, um, the Asian American Law Caucus. And since our community really lacks a lot of those, I really see Section 503 as an opportunity 
um, you know, within the next 20 years or so to really build out some of those places. You know, I'd love to see an American Association of Disabled Engineers um, mm -hmm. or an American Mm -hmm. Association of Disabled Architects, um, you know, and being really, really be able to use Section 503 as a catalyst um, to building greater capacity within our own community. And may I just say before someone else jumps in, as you, as you all know, of course, I'm a woman living with epilepsy, and I am the founder of Bender Consulting Services, a company that focuses on the employment of people with disabilities. And since 1995, I've had three major customers, Highmark, Bear, and CSC. Now, I had a myriad of others here and there, but, you know, to be honest with you, this is a market that didn't exist. It was me going to companies, come on, you need to consider this. People with disabilities have talent. They, you know, don't pity, realize they have the bottom line. Since this 503, I have never had so many new companies calling me that have never been in touch with me before, which tells me, the great opportunity for everyone listening to this show to find employment. And, you know, what we need here is a paradigm shift where we realize the business value, where we market ourselves the way others do. We've got to come out of the shadows here. You know, we, we really do. Um, what do you think, Dara? Um, I, I completely agree, um, and I hear, um, I think what um, Rebecca was talking about in reference to uh, trade organizations, um, it is definitely needed. I also think that there has to be some type of education and training of human resources to the community. That the, the, those are the people who hire people, especially in large organizations, um, and I, I, I completely agree that um, just like with any other um, diversity, cultural competency organization or group, um, it takes, you know, learning about that community and what's going on and how to address those situations, and um, I do think that, there, that a lot of great work has happened, and I completely agree with what Rebecca said about President Obama and the administration having a commitment to this, um, but I also heard, like, what Rebecca uh, would um Rhonda said in reference to, you know, there's still some tweaking that needs to be done and there's we still have some things that um, need to be addressed, but I feel that we're in the era and in the community where that can be done. Like, we have the opportunity to do this. Um, it, it's time. I mean, it's 2015 in another couple of days, um, and we should definitely take advantage of that. I mean, it happened for women. You know, women are moving up and, you know, just like yourself, owning your own business and doing those things. That wouldn't have happened 50 years ago. That probably wouldn't happen 40 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, things change and the community has to start doing it. Um, and this is the way to do that and to show um, success stories along with um, challenges because um, not everything works out well for everyone and we have to show that too, um, that there are um, resources and people out here who are experts to help get people with disabilities into the positions that they need to be in. Um, and because of education and inclusion, they're also educated people with disabilities who are quite capable of um, being presidents and CEOs and vice presidents of organizations. So not just getting them jobs, but giving them a career, a way to move up um, and develop and become, you know, just as successful as other people. 
Right, and Rhonda, actually I'm going to ask you a question here. And before I ask you, you know what Dara was saying made me think of this. I sometimes say to, to people, I say, you know, we too are a diverse group. So mm-hmm. try to imagine saying, okay, all federal contractors, now you're obligated to have affirmative action to hire women, Okay, all federal contractors, you know, you have to have an affirmative uh, action to hire Latinos, to hire uh, African Americans. I mean, you know, do you think think about what we're talking about? We're talking about, hey, why aren't we hired? This would be like saying, hey, why aren't women hired? So, Rhonda, that's what I wanted to talk to you about. Uh, What what is your opinion? are some of the main reasons. I know you're involved with DREDF. You're at DREDF, and by the way, hello to Susan Henderson, and another wonderful, great leader, Pat Wright, who was with DREDF. But what I wanted to, and by the way, Rhonda, I remember Pat Wright saying to me years ago, oh, you know why you're great? Because you hire us. I mean, that's, this was like 20 years ago. That, though, is how rare it was. So here's the question, Rhonda. Why do you think it's been so hard for people with disabilities to gain employment? Um, well, first I want to say thank you for giving a, um, a nod to my colleagues because I do. I work with some amazing, amazing people and to have learned from Pat and from Susan and Mary Lou Breslin and Arlene Mayerson and Marilyn Golden and others at Dreda who are just amazing leaders and amazing, um, brilliant individuals. Um, I think the biggest one is stigma. I think there's just, you know, the expect, the low expectation of what people with disabilities can do. You know, I think, as you said, we're a diverse group with um, every, you know, we, we represent cross disabilities. So everyone, I'm, myself, I'm an amputee. I, I wear two artificial legs. Sometimes I use a wheelchair. Sometimes I do not. Um, and we are a, a very diverse um, and a group of people um, who range uh, a wide, uh, as, as in society, all, all people in society. And I think the first um, barrier is just the expectation and the belief around what we as a community individually and together can do. Um, I think there's ideas that it's expensive, that accommodations are going to be costly or time-consuming or not able to, to fit into a business or, or a corporation's reality or, or an agency's reality, and I think that is proving to be untrue time and time again. You know, there might be some costs, but it is not um, as difficult as, as many think it is to provide needed accommodations for individuals to be able to live into doing the work that they, they are able to do. Um, and I think technology is helping with this, um, that as, as technology continues to grow, as does the doors being opened with telecommuting or with other other modifications or options. Um, and I just want to go back to one point with 503, and it links to this, Joyce, is that, you know, you know, one of one of the um, the challenges is often disclosure, um, because disability is often very personal and private, and so it's sometimes hard to to quantify and to you know have be sure that individuals are disclosing what their needs are to be able to do that. So I and to also not just have the seven percent uh, be a, an aspirational goal, the utilization goal, but to have it potentially be a requirement. I mean, I would love to see that happen as well. Yeah. How about Dara or Rebecca? Do you have anything to add to this? 
This is Rebecca. The only thing that I would add to, to Rhonda's point, and I think it's really critically important, that as we're talking about increasing the number of people with disabilities um, being employed due to, the, due to Section 503 regs, that we're also um, intentional about ensuring that those folks represent all of our community. Mm-hmm. Um, I think through the great work of... of Hi, Davidson, may he rest in peace, and Allie Cannington and the Disability Solidarity Work um, and others in our community, we're having an increase, we're having a much-needed dialogue um, on racial, ethnic, LGBTQIA, um, socioeconomic diversity within our community. Um, And it's a conversation that we really need to have um, and that we haven't had for as long as I can remember. and that it's critical that we have it in the context of every piece of policy that impacts the disability community. And so making sure that we're recruiting, you know, African-American leaders with disabilities, um, Asian-American leaders with disabilities, Arab-American LGBTQIA leaders with disabilities, um, and that it's not just about pale, male, and stale anymore, that we have to really practice what we preach. Mm, I loved your sayings, Becca. <laughs> I do. I've, I always love them. You know, I want to just say something about this that I know is controversial, but being that I'm a radio host and for 12 years, I like to be controversial. So um, we don't like to talk about this. But I believe just from disability history, from reading, Books like The Ugly Laws and uh, Disability and Cinema, um, and in my own life experience, I believe that one of the reasons that people don't like to have people with disabilities is also because to them the way they look. For example, um, I have epilepsy, and of course this is a hidden disability, but when I tell someone I have epilepsy, I just get this stare, or they say something um, like, wow, you don't look like you have epilepsy, which I always want to say, oh, sorry, I forgot my flashing e-badge. But you know, the reason that they are nervous is in this case, it isn't the cost, it's seeing someone have a seizure. You know, it's having that in the workplace. And there was a time in history where if you were out on the street with a disability, you were considered unsightly and you actually were arrested. This was the time of the ugly laws. But, you know, when someone is different, when they have a significant disability, a burn victim, you know, someone blind, I don't care what it is, I believe in some cases people have a problem just having those people around. I mean, I don't know, Dara, what do you think about that? Um, I think you're absolutely right um, that, you know, we all know those things are there um, and things are very hard for people to talk about. Um, but you, as you said, we have to. That is the only way you move forward um, is know that history. You know, history repeats itself and it continuously goes on and on when you don't discuss it and when it's not brought up. Um, and it's just like what Rebecca was talking about in reference to race and disability, um, the intersections of uh, you know, religion, mm-hmm. sexuality, and disability. People don't like to discuss that either. Um, but it is what it is. Um, we are a nation full of diversity, full of different 
viewpoints. Um, I'm also one of those people that I believe everyone's viewpoint is important. Um, and those people who don't think like me, I think it is our job to change their mind, but they have the right to have that feeling. Um, and yes, I mean, I, I honestly, unfortunately, um, Joy, I think that people still think that way about disabilities. Uh, there are still people who don't feel that um, that comfortable when they're in a room with a person with any type of disability, mm-hmm. uh, whether it be, quote-unquote, uh, something disfiguring their face or their body parts um, or how they speak or how they don't speak. It just makes people feel uncomfortable. Um, and that continues today. I think that's also a hindrance in how people get employed and stay employed. Um, and that's part of what I wanted to add on about the 503. Uh, you're not only training these uh, people who are hiring, we need to be training uh, the people they work with, their coworkers, mm-hmm. um, the same as you did, again, with diversity, cultural competency trainings that happen. That has, you have to have some kind of disability sensitivity, disability, disability cultural competency training, uh, for um, the coworkers so that they can understand what's happening, what's going on. Um, you know, it's kind of like being in school, right? You're, you're the outsider who's coming in, um, and it's never good to feel that way. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not saying that, you know, it's, it's a must or, you know, you, you know, there's no statute to say you have to do that, but it, in order to make it uh, adjustable, easy, and good for the person who's coming in, we need to have those type of things. And the last thing I also wanted to add, and no one ever talks about this when you, you know, talk about the whole labor market and, and employment, is transportation. So you get these people these great jobs, and they can't get to them. And so I just want to throw that out there that it's, you know, it's um, the chicken before the egg or, the, you know, um, you, we have to have transportation systems that can help people get to work. Um, uh, and people don't only just work. They need those transportations for work, play, and pray. Um, they're, you know, going to enjoy life, you know, just like the rest of us who want to go catch a movie after work or have dinner or go to a holiday party. So those are the kinds of that conversation needs to be happening. And it is happening. I know President Obama um, clearly has um, conversations that go across the board into the administration. So Department of Transportation is, of course, you know, working with DOJ, DOL, all on Department of Labor, excuse me, and Department of Justice. We, we speak in acronyms in D.C. Mm-hmm. Um, so that has to happen because you can get these great jobs, but they can't get to them and they can't get home. And Actually, Rebecca, I agree with in here. Go ahead. Because Dara mentioned a really good point by raising transportation. That this is, you know, we're looking at, I mean, 503 is one piece and each piece of legislation or, you know, executive order or action is, is separate unto itself, but they all overlap. I mean, we're talking about the life cycle of a, of a person in, in society. So we're ta- we really need to coordinate and look at everything as they relate together. You know, we can work on education and, and you know, restraint and seclusion and education issues and assessments, but then we need to look at the transition issues to employment. So are we having enough of a pipeline of qualified you know, kids with disabilities being educated and having teachers that that are, um, and we may be raising issues that you want to get to later, but, you know, that we have teachers who are qualified to train, to educate kids with disabilities, that we have kids who are not being abused in schools and restraint and seclusion, um, that kids and, you know, uh, in the intersectionality, African-American kids with disabilities and other, you know, kids who are part of the school-to-prison pipeline and are steered in that direction are not being educated to be able to be employable. 
Um, and then we need the transportation and the housing and the everything else that, that sustains, as Sarah said, you know, um, a complete, a complete life. And, and to, at least for me, I'm, you know, I know we all work sometimes on, on specific issues that, that we focus on, but that we really need to be looking at the big picture and how all of these policies and laws and, and actions, uh, intersect. Right. Becca, were you going to say something? Well, um, the only thing I was going to add is historically, if you look at how, um, sort of the history of, of employment legislation as it relates to people with disabilities, um, typically you'll see an increase in um, disability employment legislation following a war. Um, this dates back to the Civil War. Um, where you saw the first uh, sort of veteran-focused employment bill passed shortly after 1865. Um, and then shortly after that comes typically a transportation bill um, for that very reason. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see if that, if that trend line continues and, and remains consistent going forward. Hmm, very interesting. Yeah, that is. By the way, before I forget this, um, NCD... Wow, you're going to a great city for your conference. Oh, are you talking about how our upcoming conference is in Pittsburgh? Yes. Yes, we are very excited. Well, we are very excited to have you. We are really excited. So for everyone listening, the national conference is going to be in Pittsburgh this year. Uh, when is, I know it's in May. When is that back in May? This is Rebecca Coakley, and our quarterly, um, our spring quarterly meeting is taking place the first week. Um, so I believe it is, let me pull up my calendar here. Um, it is May um, 4th and 5th in, um, in Pittsburgh. Well, you know you're going to get maybe the seven, hold on, It might be the 7th or the 8th. I'm not sure. Now. I have to look. Okay, you know you're going to get the royal treatment. Oh, we're, exci- we're thrilled. And Pittsburgh is such a hub of great things um, and great innovation that we are, we are thrilled to be able to be there. Well, we're telling the world, so we're thrilled to have you uh, with us, a great leader such as yourself. We are glad to have you here. Um, and, Dara, I have to come back to you for a minute, only because I know that your organization is so involved with this. You know, we were talking about changes that occurred. I wanted to talk about changes that occurred in 2014 and, you know, how we're seeing some movement in other directions. And what I'm referring to here is 14C. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you think that's going to go, Sarah? What's going on there? Oh, well, thank you for that, Joyce. And, yes, um, NDRA, National Disability Rights Network, um, is a great organization. R.E.D., Kurt Zecker, um, this is a passion for him to um, actually uh, kind of end sub quote-unquote sub-minimum wage, uh, 14C, in case the audience doesn't know what that is. Um, it's part of the um, Fair Labor Standards Act that um, certain businesses can get a certificate and pay people with disabilities um, sub-minimum wage, under minimum wage. Some people get paid, you know, as low as $0.02 cents an hour or $2 a day. 
Um, and yes, um, same here as what uh, Rhonda was saying. Um, I work with some great people here at NDRN. Um, David Hutt is one of our attorneys here who this is his project, working closely uh, with uh, Department of Labor, Wage and Hour, also with our own protection and advocacy organizations around the country um, to kind of end this, to uh, look at the certificates that are out there in the country, whether or not they are up to date or expired, and if they are, how are these organizations is trying to change this process and this practice. Um, as many of you know, or hopefully you know, um, you know, beginning of the year, there was an executive order by the president in reference to uh, government contractors um, doing this. And we had to um, ask, and we received the permission um, that uh, those government contractors uh, will not be allowed to pay people with disabilities sub-minimum wage um, and use a 14C certificate anymore starting in January, um, January uh, 1st, 2015. Um, and we um, here at NDRN have also another team um, uh, run by uh, Zach and uh, Cheryl who uh, also do what's called um, rep payee, and um, uh, those are people who are receiving and Social Security checks, and they usually have, you know, a person who uh, is their representative and receives those checks. Um, and some of the investigations that we're doing, unfortunately, um, those people are being abused. Um, that money is either not going to them or not all of the money is going to them. Um, and in um, that work, we also see a connection between those people who are doing that and also employing people with disabilities and using these 14C subminimum wage. Um, some of you may have read the New York Times article a couple of weeks ago in reference to South Carolina where that was happening. Um, and so uh, it is a practice that goes around the United States. Um, it is something that is um, disheartening um, and it's something that we want to end. Um, I also think that the court of public opinion um, is starting to bring people around to understand that you cannot um, use these practices uh, to quote unquote basically enslave people with disabilities. I would, call, I would uh, equal it too. Um, and that when the executive order happened was kind of when um, people in D.C. and advocates around the country who do employment, such as uh, the retail workers and restaurant workers who were, when they had their signs and they said, we are the lowest paid people in America, we had to let them know, no, you're not. Uh, there's a whole other group of people who are paid even lower than you, um, and they are legally paid this way because this continues um, to go on. And the um, Department of Labor has been working closely with many advocates, um, and we're trying to address this uh, in the best manner possible. Of course, you don't want to just say end this practice and throw people out there with no kind of training and no possibility to um, get jobs that pay people the co uh, correct way. So we um, we have model um, states around the country. Uh, Vermont is one of them. Um, so that is the work that we do here at NDRN and the protection and advocacy because, you know, our number one thing is abuse. Um, and if you're abusing someone, we need to end that. And this is a form of abuse. This is employment abuse. And this is Rebecca, and I just wanted to build on what Dara said and also give her a hard time because, of course, she knows I'm in South Carolina right now. <laughs> um, but I think one of the interesting things from 14C as a business model is that this program was intended to be a transition program to help transition people into integrated employment. And it failed 95% of the time. 95% of the people in those programs never get any exposure to integrated employment. Now, Joyce, you're from the business community. If you were funding something that failed 95% of the time, wouldn't you cut it loose? 
You got to believe that. Absolutely. And so any other industry that failed in their gold 95% of the time, you would see stockholders, you know, like raise up. You would see leaders and pioneers of industry um, call it a pariah and distance themselves from it. You would see the um, yes, CEO lingered. But I, as, as Dara said, I think in the court of public opinion, you really are starting to see a paradigm shift in terms of people's perspective on this. And I think there really is something about being vocal about it and talking about it. I remember being, um, being, some, being at a, a place of business um, like in a, in a personal capacity and walking through and seeing a box of office supplies um, with that lovely little symbol on it that tells you that it's made, um, it's compiled by workers making subminimum wage. And I called them blood paper clips. Mm-hmm. And somebody looked at me and said, what? I go, it's akin to blood diamonds. I go, these, mm-hmm. the, these paper clips are made with the blood, sweat, and tears of disabled workers making less than minimum wage. And the person I was talking to was very much a pro-union, pers- uh, pro-union activist. And she looked at me and she goes, you're, you're kidding me. And she goes, this is where we get all our supplies. And I said, well, it seems like it's in direct contradiction to your values. Um, and so having those conversations, and I think that's one of the key things for 2015. 2015 is about having those conversations. Let's spend 2015 having the conversations within our community that are hard to have um, for that exact reason, because they are hard conversations to have, whether it be on sub-minimum wage, whether it be on... Um, the, you know, the, the lack of funding for youth leadership initiatives tied to young people with disabilities, whether it be tied to police violence and people with disabilities. Um, we need to have these conversations, and I think 2015 being the 25th anniversary of the ADA is a prime opportunity to have those conversations. I agree, and Becca, wh- Rebecca, what do you say when people say to you, well, which is what they say to me when I tell them that 14C is not work, it's slavery, and they say, oh, well, Joyce, what's going to happen to those people with significant disabilities that now will have nothing and will not be able to work and no dignity and thrown out on the streets, have to live again at home with their parents, be depressed? What do you say to them? First off, there is indignity being paid five cents an hour to put paper clips in a box. Um, dignity is getting, is getting a fair wage for a fair day's work. Um, if this were any other community of people in this country, if this were people with freckles, um, if this were people with high-top fades, if this were people, um, you know, if these were veterans, I mean, veterans are a great example to use. If these were our men and women coming back from, from serving overseas, and we know that the veterans population struggles with employment. If we were to say, let's put them all in a room and have them put paper clips in a box and pay them five cents on the dollar. Right. I agree would with revolt. you. It would be, it would change overnight. And I think mm-hmm. it really is about valuing people and valuing the work that they do and, and treating them with dignity. Well, you know, what that reminds me of is something that I'm saying to employers, and that is don't think for us. Don't make decisions for us. Don't say we want to be called differently abled. You know, don't you make the decision about 
many things, and that includes what Rebecca's talking about. You know, someone said that to me about a young man with Down syndrome, and I said, you mean an intellectual disability, a person I found employment for right here in Pittsburgh at Highmark? You know, have you ever said to people, here are other opportunities rather than making those paper clips for five cents an hour? Uh, I mean, Dara, what do you say to people when they say that? Oh, <laughs> I usually tell people, you know, you need to look at his history. Here we go yet again. Look at another group of people who were, quote, unquote, let my people go. Um, and, you know, they made it. You know, when there's a will to survive, they will, and they will do it. And that, um, like I said, we don't want to just cut off uh, the uh, lifeline, but there are ways to do this. We have mm-hmm. great examples. We have great models around the country. Um, there are people out there who respect people with disabilities and have jobs for them to do. Um, all this talk about, oh, my gosh. It really, when people are saying that, the ones that I hear are the ones who are making money off of this um, mm-hmm. business and how it's done, and it's, you know, they won't make money anymore. Well, too bad. You should have been making money that way anyway. And then when it comes to families who I completely, you know, understand and say they they see this, you know, their child won't be able to do anything or go anywhere, that's from fear. And fear comes from not knowing and not being knowledgeable about something. And when we give them the information and when we talk to them and show them that it can be done, then it's done. Um, and this is not done, you know, um, only here in the United States. It's done all across the world where there are people who have lived in poverty um, for most of their lives or multiple generations. And then, you know, things change and they get education, whether it be some type of training, uh, you know, blue-collar training, you know, basic, you know, uh, versus white-collar training or whatever it may be, and they change their lives and they change their situations. Um, and so where there's a will, there's a way. Um, and we that's why we have, quote-unquote, the experts who are out there doing this work every day and um, are going to make a change. Um I I see it as fear. I see people saying that because the unknown, of course you're going to be fearful. But at the same time, um, it's not completely unknown. There are people out here who are doing this every day, and there are people who have made these changes, and it can happen. Um, And the more people who think positive um, about outcomes for people, um, the better it will happen. And um, that's how we have to do it. And I'm with you 100% all of you because I think it's shameful. You know, that's the only word I can use for it. It's Mm -hmm. terrible. Uh, And speaking of that, Rhonda, you know, I sadly remember sitting there when the vote was coming down for CRPD, looking over at you. I think you were seated by Marka, uh, but all I remember is seeing you cry. I I remember (laughs) that as if it was yesterday. Uh, Actually, Tony Coelho, I have never seen, and, and you know, I love Tony. Everyone knows I'm close to Tony. I've known him since 1996. I have never seen him as upset as he was that day. So, where are we, Rhonda, on CRPD? Okay, so yes, yeah, for your listeners who don't know the history, that day was two years ago um, in 2012, December 4th, um, where we lost the votes for uh, CRPD ratification by five votes. Um, we, as a community, and I just want to say publicly, to every person who worked on the CRPD here in D.C., as well as 
the amazing leaders and amazing grassroots across this country. Thank you um, for every call, every email, every meeting, every everything that you did. Um, because really, this this is an amazing network. Um, our, our coalitions with the faith and the civil rights communities, the business community, and it really was an amazing effort. Um, we did everything that we could, and, and Dara and Rebecca were intimately involved in this as well. Um, we did not get to another floor vote this year in 2014. Um, we just did not have the votes, um, given the political reality and, and situation um, this year to do that. But we made, in my view, a, a valiant attempt um, and really did everything that we could um, as a community and as a as a cross cross issue cross uh, you know all the different communities that that, that were involved towards CRPD ratification because we all know that this was not this was about the CRPD but this was about the bigger issues about how people with disabilities are viewed here in the U.S. as well as in the world um, and now. Where we are is, at least from my end, I want to start talking about, okay, if the senators were saying which, you know, the CRPD was based on our Americans with Disabilities Act, which we have our anniversary coming up this year, and they're saying it's the gold standard for the world, and I want to see what <laughs> what we can do from there. You know, what if it is, then how do we back that up, and how do we say, you know, a lot of the Republican senators said we don't need to ratify the CRPD, which I still think we need to do. Um, I hope that it, you know, in, in future years when, when politics are, are more um, appropriate or able to have that happen, that that CRPD will easily be ratified. But I, that might be many years or some time down the road. But I would like to have conversations about what type of inclusive aid do the USAID or the State Department is needed what, what can we do to back up those statements of we can act without CRPD? And I think that's, those are the conversations that we'll be having as we move forward, at least. In the, yeah, I talk about bipartisan. Senator mm -hmm. Dole was there. His wife, Senator Dole, was there. Yep. Uh, Senator McCain. Uh, I mean, there, yeah, I know our two governors, Thornburg and Ridge, were testified. We had amazing bipartisanship as part of CRPD, and, and honestly, Joyce, disability issues has always been bipartisan. We have never fallen into the traps of, of partisan politics. Unfortunately, now, you know, that's becoming part of the conversation, but I would like us to continue to, to keep the bipartisan voice. We had, you know, great Republican senators who were in support of the CRPD, and and, and other issues that we work on, and we need to keep cultivating that and keep um, keep educating about how disability can can touch anyone, any family of any political persuasion, and it's it's not just you know a democratic issue, as you said, Ridge and and Gordon Gray and um, Dick Thornburg and and all and very, Bob Dole was amazing. I mean, really a hero in fighting for the CRPD. Um, every day, and, and we need to move some more. UN Convention on Rights of Persons with Disability, let me tell you about the CRPD. You've still got to get behind it, folks. You've still mm -hmm. got to talk to your senators. You've got to keep bringing it up. Every veterans group was behind this. Every veterans group. 
So one thing we can't do and we won't do is give up. Hey, we're a tough, persevering group of people. We're not going away. We're not going away. And, you know, you just mentioned about the 25th anniversary. I like to end the show with a very positive, upbeat way. So how awesome is that? that next July 26th we will be celebrating the 25th anniversary of the signing of the Americans with Disabilities Act, our Civil Rights Act. Rebecca, what do you think about that? Um, Joyce, I, I am very excited about the 25th anniversary of the ADA, but I'm also um, very cognizant of how much we still have to do mm-hmm. and what we really need to be thinking about as a community. Um, I'd like to see it as a year focused on planning versus parties, um, to be frank. Um, parties planning are important. Yes, parties. It, 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 what did I tell you about Rebecca Coakley? It's she critical to celebrate our wins, but we've just lost the largest cross-disability youth leadership organization. Um, we've lost multiple, leader, multiple next-generation leaders with disabilities this year to various issues. We lost CRPD, and part of what I think an opportunity is, particularly on CRPD, is when you go up to the hill, how many people with disabilities do you guys run into working on the hill? Not a lot. Um, we need our people employed on the hill. I can only think of throughout the history of various um, public and private funded congressional internship programs around people with disabilities, I can only think of two interns in the last 10 plus years who ever achieved full-time employment in Hill offices. Part of the problem is those legislators don't see our people. They don't have to look them in the eye every single day when they get their mail or when they walk into their office or when they're headed to the floor. Um, And it's a lot harder to vote against people you know like people you have personal relationships with. Um, and so I think, I think, you know, we have a number of events going on, and our role here at the National Council on Disability, we've been asked by, by Yoshiko and by, by others to help serve as sort of um, um, the conductor of the orchestra of events in, in Washington. And there are some amazing events going on. We have great colleagues over at the Kennedy Center, at the Smithsonian, um, you know, throughout, throughout Washington doing some phenomenal events and activities tied to the, the celebration of the 25th anniversary of the ADA. But I would really like to see our community spend some time doing some serious strategic planning um, because it's really going to matter what happens in the next 25. And it really requires us having some of those difficult conversations that we don't like to have. I say let's do it. Um, you know, we need to also breed, you know, there, there are definitely members, you know, we're losing Senator Harkin and, and Representative Miller, but there are others who, you know, have shown in perhaps not the all-around uh, Senator Harkin has been, but in certain areas, and we need to keep working with them on, breed, on building commitment to disability. Um, and raising, there's still so, as Rebecca was saying, there's so many issues, and I think that leadership of youth is a huge one. I mean, we're seeing interns who can't get jobs, and we're seeing so much need for that. 
um, as well as building on all the issues that we continue to work on in healthcare and in education and, you know, throughout. Well, if you don't develop youth leaders, you know, we lose everything. And actually, I'm going to give you some crap right now. We can't call them youth leaders anymore. What are we going to call them? They are leaders. Nobody told Judy Human when she was 19 and founded Disabled in Action that she was a youth leader. Um, And by calling them youth leaders, we continue to segregate them to a kid's table and and continue to create a hierarchy of of disability and of ageism within our own community. you know, and so I think we need to critically think what are we doing to empower the next generation of leaders um, because that's what they are. They are. It's not on us to dub them, to tap them on the head with a, with a fairy wand and say, now you are officially a leader. They are a leader when they take action. Um, our job as supporters and allies is to cultivate and develop them. Um, you know, and I, I really, I coming up from the the movement tied to youth leadership forums and youth leadership organizations, I really think that that's a way that we've we've really shot ourselves in the foot. Um, we've acquired secondary, tertiary, or quadrary disabilities um, internal to our own community um, by stigmatizing um, the idea of young leadership. Dara, what do you think about that? Hi, yes, this is Dow. I just wanted to say thank you on um, everything that was said in the ADA. Um, we are celebrating it, and I wanted to give a shout-out. We are losing Senator Harkin, but there were some other people who really worked hard on the ADA who are still in Congress and still there and or, or also who are leaving. I want to say, you know, the Senator Jay Rockefeller, from uh, Democrat from West Virginia, Senator Carl Levine, Democrat from Michigan, um, Representative Buck McKinnon, um, McKeon from California, he's a Republican from California, we're losing, and George Miller from California, who helped us out, and that we still have leaders in the House and Senate. Sandy Hoyer is still there, and um, Jim Langevin, Danny Davis from Illinois. Illinois, you guys should be really proud about your, you know, Tammy Duckworth, Jan Schakowsky, um, and then we have some senators, Richard Durbin, um, Chris Murphy, Mark Kirk, uh, Senator Collins, Bernie Sanders, Al Franken, Amy Klobuchar, Senator Lee. Lisa Murkowski, uh, Representative Glenn Thompson. So we still have people in there, and Jim, and Jim Sensenbrenner, and um, much prayers and everything to the Sensenbrenner family. Um, but we also, on that note, when everyone's talking, when Rebecca said working on the Hill, I also feel that in the, for the 25th anniversary, we need to initiate and engage people to be more. We need more Tony Coelho's. We need people with disabilities to run for public office. We need people who are going to think like us and be like us to be in public office. So not only work on that hill, but be a senator or a representative in that office who's running that office. And we need to encourage our young people who are running. I want to give a shout-out to Alex Waters, who was an AAPD intern in 2012, and then he ran for a public office out there in um, Iowa. He didn't win, but he did it. And I want to say, you know, we need more of those. We need more young people and more people with disabilities to run for public office. And this is Rebecca. And building on what Dara said, I know both um, Paul Fogel, who's a former AAPD intern, uh, ran, Paul ran for school board in Pennsylvania this last year, um, as did Josie Bizek. And so I think part of it is is also our responsibility as a community to lift those up who are running for office. Um, you know, we need to be building our own internal infrastructure, something akin to like the Wellstone program, 
to really help support um, help support you know folks from our community with our values running for public office at any level. Agreed. And, you know, uh, folks, as you can see, we've got three passionate people here, but guess what? Without ideas, without challenges, you will never see change, ever. And, you know, these three are awesome. I just want to mention, because I've had a lot of people uh, email, tweet me, uh, on Facebook, everywhere, about this show, how excited they were about this show. Yes, you can download this show from iTunes. And in addition, this show is archived at BenderConsult.com and VoiceAmerica.com for over 12 years. So once again, iTunes or go to VoiceAmerica or go to BenderConsult.com and you will be able to download this show. And see, we need more of this because we need our history. Uh, and that's what this is all about. And I want to thank each of you for joining us. Thank you, Rebecca Coakley. Thank you, Dara Baldwin. And thank you, Rhonda Newhouse. Thank, thank you, you. Lead on. Happy holidays. Happy holidays, Happy ho- in the new year. Happy holidays, everyone. Yes, happy holidays to everyone. And, hey, we've got to end the quote with what Dara just said. For you, Yoshiko, and for all of us, lead on. And in 2015, let's all lead on. Let's make it a year of change. Let's speak up, as Tony Coelho told me, when you get a chance to take the podium, speak up. This is Joyce Bender. America's Voice, where disability matters at voiceamerica.com. Talk to you all next week. Voice America would like to thank you for tuning in. Please join us next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time for another installment of Disability Matters right here on the Internet Leader and Talk Radio, voiceamerica.com.